on this special episode of Movie Geeks United, we are celebrating the 45th anniversary of The Spy Who Loved Me, the 10th in the James Bond 007 series. And we're speaking with Ray Morton, who uh, we've had previously on to talk about uh, one of the James Bond films. I think it was um, For Your Eyes Only, I believe you were on earlier about that. Ray is the author of wonderful books about such varied films as A Hard Day's Night. Uh, King Kong, The History of a Movie Icon, which is a terrific book about the history of all the King Kong films. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He did a terrific book on the making of that film as well. And uh, there are many others that you can find in such wonderful places as, uh, well, I'll not name them all. There's those places where you get your books, let's just say that. And let's not forget (laughs) that Ray contributed a wonderful commentary to the Shout Scream Factory, I think it's Scream Factory, I believe it was, uh, Blu-ray edition, special edition last year, collector's edition of the 1976 King Kong. He did a terrific job uh, covering all the nuts and bolts of that week. We also talked about it here on a previous episode of the show, so if you're interested in hearing Ray talk about that on one of our other episodes of the show, you can look for that one as well. But as I said, today we're going to be talking about the 40, uh, the Spy Who Loved Me on the 40, the occasion of the 45th anniversary of its release, which was in the summer of 1977. And seven, th- seven, seventy-seven. Right? Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> All ties together. Um, yes. <laughs> I think it's. Uh, I think the best place to start with all of this, and it is a tangled story, uh, there's quite a lot to talk about and unravel here for anybody who doesn't know all this history. Uh, we'll just, I guess, talk about what the status of the 007 franchise was circa 1975 when they were in the planning stages of what they were going to do next. Uh, Harry Saltzman, who had previously uh, been the uh, one of the co-owners of the, the franchise, was was um, thinking of selling his share, and there's a whole story behind that, and so we'll we'll let you take it from here. Okay, sounds good. Um, yeah, so uh, the Bond series was produced for, for the first nine films by Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli, um, and how they came to be partners was that um, Harry Saltzman had did not have a huge track record as a film producer. He had worked in England uh, in Woodfall films, which did great films like um, uh, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner and Tom Jones and films like that. So he had been in the industry, but Albert Broccoli, Cubby Broccoli, had had more of a track record, a longer track record. So Harry somehow came into the um, into the ownership of the rights to the James Bond novels, which is something that Cubby had always wanted to produce. So they joined forces in the early 60s and and worked together uh, initially harmoniously and then gradually less and less harmoniously on the on the ensuing nine films. Um, by the mid 70s, one of the other things is that Harry Saltzman liked to produce um, outside projects. He was not content just to produce James Bond where Covey Broccoli was. He thought all of his attention should go to Bond because it was so successful. Broccoli produced other films like um, uh, the, Harry, uh, the Harry Palmer movies, The Epcrest File and Funeral in Berlin uh, with Michael Caine. And he produced a gigantic epic, The Battle of Britain, which was a big um, roadshow picture in the late 60s. But along the way, he also invested in a lot of other businesses and essentially got overextended um, to the point where he was he was in real financial trouble. And he, there were some shenanigans with he had promised to sell to, to finance some of his debts, debts, he he offered people uh, his share of the bond company, which was uh, a company called Danjack SA, and that was the parent company of uh, Eon Productions, which is the company that makes the Bond movies. Um, and he had offered his shares in the company, and that was a violation of the partner agreement. He wasn't allowed to actually do that. The partner agreement said that. Um, that if one or one of the two people wanted to sell, they had to offer it to the other. But by then he was so he and uh, brought Cubby were so at odds they didn't want to do that. And so essentially he tried to sell his shares. And when Cubby found out that resulted in this massive lawsuit and it stopped the production of the Bond films, the, the Bond films initially came out one a year. 
And then by um, by the early 70s, they were coming out every other year, pretty much like clockwork. You could pretty much rely on a Bond film every summer or every Christmas, depending on on the particular year. But mm-hmm. this stopped the, the film's dead. They could not go ahead with the next movie, which was The Spy Who Loved Me, though it was in such early development that there wasn't really a movie yet. There was just um, the, the indication that there would come there would be another film. Also, they in the deal, the the, uh, the partnerships with the United Artists, who financed and distributed the films, they were required to start production on the new Bond film in a, in sort of a regular uh, schedule because other, otherwise there was some way in which United Artists could kind of come in and take it over and assign it to another producer. And of course, they didn't want that to happen. So there was this big legal battle, and it went back and forth, and the talk was uh, the clock was ticking. And what they finally ended up doing was that um, United Artists bought out Harry Salzman's um, portion of the Bond company. So now, not only was United Artists going to distribute the Bond films, they were actually co-owners of it, which they had not been up until that time. And that Harry did not want to sell his shares to Cubby, so that was kind of the, the middle ground they came up with, except that United Artists kind of made the deal with um, Harry without quite telling Cubby. So Cubby kind of found out about it a little bit after it was uh, a, a fait accompli. And he was pretty furious because he didn't really want to be in partnership with a studio. And kind of, if you know the history of the Bond films after uh, Heaven's Gate, which is this, uh, the movie that sunk United Artists, they've had lots of ups and downs due to the fact that the studio is the co-owner. If Cubby had really wanted to stay independent, but that didn't happen. So they um, now it was United Artists and Cubby with Cubby having complete creative control. That was part of the deal. So the previous two Bond films were the first two that Roger Moore had been in. And the first one, Live and Let Die, had done pretty well at the box office. But United Artists was having a lot of financial problems. So they kind of rushed the second one, which was The Man with the Golden Gun, which, as any Bond fan or even non-Bond fan knows, is not one of the best ones in the series. In fact, is considered by some people to be very much one of the worst. (laughs) <laughs> and its box office was really bad. So basically, the, the production was in disarray, and there was some thought that Bond might be over because people didn't come out to see The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, so it was a pretty fraught time, and Cubby's idea was he decided, you know, a lot of in those days especially, sequels tended to be produced at a lower budget than the previous films because the rule of thumb was that sequels tended to make proportionately less money. And and Mammoth Golden Gun and Live and Let Die were definitely lower budget films compared to some of the earlier Bond films, mostly because United Artists wasn't clear if Roger Moore was going to be a success or not, and the company itself wasn't doing great. So everything was a little bit in turmoil. Cubby decided rather than go smaller, he wanted to go bigger. He said, We're, our, our shot here is to produce, you know, the biggest, best James Bond film we can. And somewhat because they were on board with it and somewhat to placate Cubby after they kind of did a little bit of an end run around him, United Artists agreed. And they ended up, uh, I believe the budget was $12 million, which for those days, which would have been right around 1975, 76, was a huge amount of money and was the budget of like the first four or five Bond movies put together. Um, so they were really shooting the moon on this one. And that's kind of where they ended up. Uh, once the partnership issues were resolved and Cubby was getting ready to make the film, they had this gigantic budget and they proceeded from there. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. That, that it, like I said, it was a, it was a really tumultuous journey. Uh, yes. <laughs> from where yeah. it, uh, in, in the, just a, a short number of years, uh, there's a an interesting side note in the midst of all this that I came up uh, on came upon during uh, doing my research uh, was that Harry Saltzman attempted to take over Technicolor, I believe, and there was some sort of a, uh, a a thing about that, and I just thought that was bizarre, right in the middle of all this that he was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, 
Well, they, they said that one of the things, the word on Harry was that he really liked to do different things, but they said he had a tendency to get involved with businesses he didn't really know much about. And of course, that, that can often be a recipe for disaster because mm-hmm. if you don't know about the business. Yeah. And, and he got involved and I think for a while actually was a majority shareholder in Technicolor. But that was kind of, you know, Technicolor itself had been undergoing a lot of changes. The original Technicolor process was actually on its way out at about the time that that Harry took over, which was the the three strip Technicolor, uh, you know, the way they would create that wonderful uh, rich color that Technicolor was known for. So they were kind of transitioning to becoming just another film lab, you know, a good one, but but nothing particularly special. Mm-hmm. And and so Harry chose that moment to get in the business right when they were surrendering their signature process. And the business, you know, took a long time to recover from that. And he just happened to be in the ownership position when that was going on. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't sure about all the details. I just uh, knew that there was a story behind that, and uh, yeah. I just thought that was bizarre that in the midst of all this, it was going on. Uh, yeah. And now, before we move on, this is a question that's always I've always been curious about, and I think you may have answered it just a moment ago. But uh, uh, the first two James Bond films with Roger Moore were filmed. Uh, in the 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio, which I thought was bizarre, since all of the other ones, I think from Thunderball on, they were all filmed in the 2.35 widescreen ratio. And I've always thought that was bizarre, and I I may have read somewhere why that was uh, and maybe have just forgotten it. But uh, And now I think you may have answered it with them going with the lower budget route. Did that have anything to do with them, with those movies being filmed in a flat ratio? Yeah, because the films were um, much smaller in scope and scale. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about, I mean, first of all, widescreen is more expensive anyway. But also these films were not filmed. You know, the Bond films started out as thrillers, smaller thrillers, although they always had kind of a big action component to them. But once you got to things like Thunderball and On Her Majesty's Secret Service, these were big widescreen spectacle films. And of course, their budgets were huge. Um, And uh, Diamonds Are Forever, the last Sean Connery one was another, you know, pretty big epic kind of film. But United Artists was really concerned when Roger Moore took over because, um, the, you know, they had done, a, you know, the film, the series obviously had been identified with Sean Connery up until You Only Live Twice. And then George Lazenby took over. And that, although you will sometimes hear people describe on Her Majesty's Secret Service as being a flop, it was not at all a flop. It actually did well, but it did nowhere near as well as the Sean Connery bonds. Sean Connery came back. Where diamonds are forever and that you know that film you know did, did extremely well so they united arts was nervous they're like we're going to switch the it didn't have anything to do particularly with roger moore but it was more like we're switching bonds again we don't have sean connery we don't want to risk it um so essentially the budgets for the for live and let die and man with the golden gun were considerably smaller than the budgets for the previous like three or four films and everything was scaled down. If, if you look at the films, you know, the sets are not as elaborate. The action is good, but it's not the, it's not sort of the gigantic widescreen spectacle action that you had sort of come to ex, uh, expect. So, yeah, that that was going on with that series at the time. Oh, OK. Uh, that that that's, uh, that settles it, because that's always been a burning question. Uh, for me that I just thought it was bizarre right here in the middle of the franchise you have these two films yeah. that kind of <laughs> stick out <laughs> and uh, yeah of course um, uh, it seemed like the Bond series was chasing trends at that at that time, period in time uh, you know Live and Let Die just has this feel of a, of a stab at getting on the black exploitation trend and it seems Absolutely. like yeah, there, yeah. There's, it's very obvious and uh, it's somewhat of a bizarre film to me uh, in, in, in a lot of ways because uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially the way that uh, Yafet Koto is dispatched uh, by using a gag from an old Three Stooges short where they inflate him right. <laughs> with air. <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's kind of a strange film in that in that compared to some of the other ones in that same era, the plot is kind of 
much more basic and down to earth. It's Bond chasing drug dealers, which is not something Bond, you know, sure, Bond yeah. films are usually bigger. Yet they put all these kind of Bond touches in, like instead of shooting the drug dealer, you you know, inflate him and explode him. You know, so it's got these weird Bond touches in a movie that actually isn't so much a Bond film, which is, is kind of odd. Plus, it is very much riding on the exploitation trend. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. It's very evident. It really is. And uh, and then the, the the one before we move move along, it is worth mentioning the, uh, this is another thing that's always stuck out to me with the man, the man with the golden gun, of course, was yeah. all of the product placement for American Motors vehicles in that film they must have gotten half of the film's budget from their deal with american motors including the flying car uh, that's what i was gonna say was it a gremlin yeah. i, I want to say but maybe i'm wrong about that I, can't I, I don't think it was a gremlin but it was one of those compacts from the time i think right. maybe for a sure. pacer a pa i think a, a pacer i think that, yeah, a pacer. Sure. yeah yeah oh, only those of us who lived through that era would remember those cars but... <laughs> exactly exactly we probably rode in the back of one of them at one point so. <laughs> i think so. i I think my dad took one of them for a test drive at one point. I think yeah. I can remember going to a dealership and actually getting in a pacer for a test drive. So that's, I uh, wanted one when I was a kid because it looked like a bubble. I mean, it's a car that a kid would want. Oh, you know? sure. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And for anybody who doesn't uh, remember what we're talking about, it's the same vehicle that Wayne and Garth are in in the uh, Wayne's World <laughs> films. So, uh, that's right. That's for, right. For whatever it's worth. <laughs> yes. Right. So... Anyway, well, we'll move along to The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, uh, now, we'll get into the casting and the pre-production and the uh, the scripting. Um, a multitude of screenwriters on this film, even John Landis, uh, yeah. supposedly was involved at yeah. one point, and then maybe Tom Mankiewicz, who wrote, uh, who penned uh, Live and Let Die and, <laughs> and Man with the Golden Gun. He says he did some rewrites, but... Nah, oh, he definitely did, Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, no, he he did for sure. Yeah, no, the 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 scripting was was um, a complicated thing because, um, you know, previously the Bond films had been getting further and further away from Ian Fleming's books. Um, you know, by the time you get to uh, Diamonds Are Forever, you know, the the plot doesn't have much to do with what Ian Fleming wrote. Though most of the films prior to that, at least, used the books as jumping off points. The problem with The Spy Who Loved Me is the novel, The Spy Who Loved Me, Ian Fleming had put a restriction on it, which he basically said that he never wanted it adapted. In the, in the, Bond, in the Bond novels, it's, it was an experimental book. So instead of being written, most of the Bond books are written either from a third-person point of view or from Bond's point of view. This one was written by, from the point of view of the heroine of the story, and and it's a very different um, kind of adventure. It's basically the story of this young woman, and she's stranded in this motel, I believe in the, in the Adirondacks in Upper New York State, and she's threatened by these criminals, and it's all basically about that. And then in the end, Bond comes in, he sort of shows up on his way home from a mission, coincidentally, and then figures out what's going on and saves her. Um, and then they have a, an affair and then he takes off. And then that's, so that's the title the spy who loved me, but he, uh, Fleming was trying to write it from a different point of view. He was trying to make it more of what in those days would have been referred to as a woman's story, which, you know, um, in itself <laughs> is, is an issue, uh, less of a thriller and more of a, a woman in danger kind of thing. Anyway, he was very unhappy with how it came out. He did not want them to adapt it in any way, shape, or form. So, and and I'm not sure why why Cubby and and Harry decided on that title with that, knowing that they had that restriction. But Cubby was known to really, really like the title, and he wanted to use it. But essentially, the deal they worked out with the Fleming estate was they could use the title, but they could use no material from the book at all. So this was the very first time that the Bond um, team had to create a story from scratch. And that had never happened before. So it took a while. They had two ideas. Um, that was the era, the beginning of the, the thaw and the Cold War, Cold War uh, the detente era. So Cubby's idea was the spy who loved me should refer to a Russian agent. 
Um, you know, he thought if Bond could team up with a Russian agent, that would be a good jumping off point for a story. And they also, from the very beginning, wanted to do something involving nuclear submarines. Um, you know, I think they were in the news quite a bit in the early and mid 70s. And they were kind of sort of the new wave of um, of of uh, naval vessels. And also, you know, people were had very much nuclear armament and dearmament on the mind. So the idea was they wanted to do something with submarines and they thought the bond should team up with a Russian agent with those provisos in place. Uh, they had a number of screenwriters come in. Um, Carrie Bates was a, a comic book writer. Uh, he worked. He wrote a lot of DC comics. He did probably the initial draft of that idea. So it was Bond actually teaming up with Titania Romanova, who is the heroine of From Russia with Love, and there and it had something to do with a stolen or a lost nuclear sub. And then that draft was put aside. Um, Anthony Burgess, who wrote the novel of Clockwork Orange, came in at one point, um, and uh, and he um, he apparently kind of ignored everything Cubby said and wrote this kind of outrageous spoof of the Bond series. Not not so much a spoof, but like sort of a satire of it, and and it, it was all over the place. John Landis was a young aspiring screenwriter at that time. He had directed a low budget film called Schlock, but he hadn't really directed anything else. Um, and he was brought in and he worked a little bit on his own and a little bit with Anthony Burgess. And apparently what came out of their collaboration was the super tanker concept. Although that concept had shown up in an earlier, um, I believe it was diamonds are forever had a super tanker in an earlier draft, but they mostly had a super tanker that would swallow submarines and that became a key part of the rest of it. So and so they kind of went back and forth. And finally, they brought in Richard Maybaum, who was um, the guy who had written most of the Bonds or co-written most of the Bond screenplays up until that time. Uh, the only exception, he does not have a credit on Live and Let Die, and he doesn't have a credit on You Only Live Twice. But otherwise, he was credited on all the films before that. And he came up with a story where um, instead of Spectre, that it would be a young new terrorist group who, who were composed of all of the different members of the different terrorist organizations that were operating in the 70s. So mm -hmm. like the PLO and Red October and all these different groups and all and these young people come in and they kill off the old guard of Spectre. So they kill off Blofeld and all the other folks and they take it over and there I, they capture a nuclear submarine or several of them to use the missiles to wipe out the world. They have no interest in blackmail. They're not trying to get anything. They just want to wipe out the world and start it over again. So that was the, the, the script that Richard Maybaum wrote and Cubby felt it was too political and a little too much of a downer. Um, but there was a transition also at that point of director and the film was originally directed by Guy Hamilton who had directed Goldfinger and then also had directed the two Roger Moore films and Diamonds Are Forever. So he had done the last three and he was uh, contracted to do Spy Who Loved Me. But because of the battle with Harry and Cubby, the pre-production dragged on or really the pre-pre-production dragged on. And he was Hamilton was finally offered the job of directing Superman, the movie. And so he left because he said he had no idea when when Spy Who Loved Me was going to go into production and, and he'd been offered a lot of money. So he went off to do Spy Who Loved Me and Cubby brought back Lewis Gilbert, who had directed um, uh, You Only Live Twice. And um, Lewis Gilbert had also directed a bunch of wonderful films, the Sink the Bismarck, uh, Alfie, which is probably the most famous one that he was associated with outside of the UK. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, he, and he had not directed a Bond film in about 10 years so Cubby brought him in, and when he came in, he brought in a writer named Christopher Wood. And Christopher Wood's uh, credentials up until that point, he'd done a few film scripts, but he was known mostly for writing a series of what they would call racy novels, the Confessions of series, Confessions of a Window Cleaner, Confessions <laughs> of a Driving Instructor. And these were basically like sex romp novels that they then began to turn into uh, kind of raunchy R-rated movies. Um, and so everyone was like, why are they bringing in that guy? 
but <laughs> but it actually turned out to be a really good idea because what Christopher Wood said is when he read the Maybaum draft, he said, you know, like he goes, I don't like politics and terrorists, and he he just said he goes. He, he wanted to make a film. He really loved the Bond formula. And he said, I wanted to make a film that honored the Bond formula. So he reworked the script with Lewis Gilbert to basically be a, a celebration of the James Bond formula. And he actually, he was also the guy who wrote the script for Moonraker. Um, and, you know, Moonraker is an excessive film in many ways. But both of those films are very much tributes to the traditional James Bond formula. Like, you know, something happens in the opening and you do a, an incredible pre-credit teaser and then Bond is called into the office and given an assignment and goes out and fights a bad guy who's trying to take over the world. The film Spy Who Loved Me is sometimes criticized of, well, you know, it's a little bit formulaic in some ways, but that was actually Christopher Wood's intention. Um, and so he actually drafted the basic the plot and 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 the set pieces and things they used bits and pieces from the earlier drafts but right before they went into production tom mankowitz was called in to do an uncredited dialogue polish and um and roger moore the famous story is when roger moore started getting the pages he said to cubby you know when did tom mankowitz get on this movie and and tom mankowitz was doing it under the table and uncredited so Cubby said, oh, Roger, you know, Mankiewicz isn't on this movie. He said, of course he is. He's on every page of the script. Tell him he's doing a great job. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Mankiewicz did the, the final polish before they started shooting. Now, uh, one other thing that I will mention before we move forward is that Blofeld was supposed to be a character initially, and I know they had some legal uh, problems with yes. that because of this, the lawsuit with Kevin McCrory over the uh, th the Thunderball. Uh, right. Yeah. thing and so they weren't able to retain the character of Blofeld so that's that's why he's not in this one uh, yeah I, the I script was written for Blofeld and it was supposed to be uh, Spectre doing the um, doing all the shenanigans and and it wasn't the it wasn't the final draft but right before right as they were really entering serious uh, pre-production Kevin McClory had sued them because, and we'll make this brief because it's a long, terrible story, but <laughs> yes, it is. basically Kevin McClory was a film director and producer who had collaborated, collaborated with Ian Fleming. They had tried to get up the Bond series off the ground before Cubby and Harry got involved. And they, they decided rather than adapt one of the novels, they would write an original story. And that was the story that became Thunderball. But that the film didn't go, and when it didn't go, Fleming was kind of in the habit of just, he assumed he owned the rights to everything because it was his character. So he wrote the novel Thunderball based on the script without crediting McClory, and there was another writer involved too. And it was a big lawsuit, and it ended up with McClory having the rights to Thunderball, and that is the novel that introduces Blofeld and Spectre. So by default, McClory actually controlled the rights to that character and that organization. And when, um, and, and he has been trying to get a remake off the ground called James Bond of the secret service, which later became known as Warhead and Cubby Cubby was, um, you know, was suing him to keep him from being able to do that. And so in retaliation, McClory sued and basically said, you guys can't use Blofeld or Spectre. So, um, so the, the lead, the villain was changed from Blofeld to a character named Carl Stromberg, who was uh, an evil shipping magnet. And it's the one place in the movie where, like, I, you can sort of see how they rushed it because um, <laughs> his plan is to wipe out the world because he wants to live under the sea because he has webbed fingers. That's kind of his motivation. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, whatever works to get to get it off right. the ground, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Sometimes, uh, and these, the, these... the funny part is at the end of the movie, when they're sinking the bad guy's headquarters, there's an escape uh, pod to, to take you up to the surface, which James Bond and, and the female lead used to escape. And I always thought it was funny. The guy wanted to create a world under the sea. Why do you have an escape pod that go up to the surface? But that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good one. That's good, great yeah. observation. Well, I guess concessions had to be made, and so they were. Yeah, yeah. sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, uh, we'll get into the production of the film because it was a, a pretty pretty big deal. Uh, as you said, much bigger scale than the previous two films. And there was even a set that had to, a soundstage that had to be, to be specifically constructed for this film. Yeah. They, and they yeah. call it, uh, I think to this day, the 007 soundstage. It, I, I don't it, think it's been it, renamed it. Uh, no, well, it, 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 the name got an addition. It's now the Albert R. Broccoli 007 stage. Oh, but yes, okay. yeah, yeah. But but originally it was just the 007 stage. Um, yeah. So what happened was the main set in the film. Uh, well, it's funny in in the early drafts of the script, the, the villain uses a, an oil super tanker to swallow up uh, the submarines. He he captures a Russian sub and a British sub, and then eventually an American sub, so that he can take the missiles, the nuclear missiles that are on board, and launch them to threaten the world. And so the idea was the sub would swallow up uh, these, these, um, these, these submarines. And the original drafts of the script had them, you know, when the, when the heroes are captured and then escape, there's a big battle all over the deck of the super tanker. But Ken Adam was brought back. Ken Adam was the famous production designer who really defined the look of the Bond films. He had started on um, on the original film, Dr. No, and, and had designed the spectacular sets for Goldfinger and Thunderball. And he did the, the volcano base in You Only Live Twice. And this was sort of equivalent to that in that a lot of the action was going to take place in and around these sets. They kind of found out that you couldn't really film on a super tanker because um, the, even when the a super tanker was empty of oil, there was so much residual gas left over that you had to you had to pay like millions of dollars to have it degassed, and you wow. had to pay um, yeah you had to pay like for the insurance to to film would have cost more than the filming. So they basically they decided let's try to have all the action happen inside the super tanker. And Ken Adam designed this incredible set, but it was so big and so vast that no soundstage could hold it. When they did You Only Live Twice, he actually built half the set in a soundstage and then had to build this sort of um, tarp uh, tented structure outside the soundstage to finish it. And the local authorities made them tear it down because it could be seen over the over the studio walls. Like once the filming was done, they had to rip it down and he said he didn't want to get into that position again. So they designed this day, this set, this gigantic set, and it had to have a tank, a water tank, so that the submarines could be brought in. And they looked all over the world. They looked at different options, but no stage really was the big, the really big places. They looked at like Zeppelin hangers and things, but but they didn't have tanks, and the places that the tanks weren't really sound stages. So finally. They decided to build a brand new soundstage. There was a tank at Pinewood. They decided to build it over the tank. And um, and it was so big that uh, um, Ken Adam actually designed the set with the walls of the soundstage in mind. So if you're watching the film, the walls of the super tanker are the actual walls of the soundstage. And, and the idea of it was that when it was over... United Artists paid to build it. It was on the property of Pinewood Studios. So basically, Pinewood would rent it out to different productions after the Bond film. And then United Artists and Cubby and Pinewood would share the share in the proceeds. So it actually turned out to be a pretty good investment because that stage got used all through the rest of the 70s and the 80s. It was used for many more Bond films. It was the North Pole and Superman and Superman 2. Um, and, and it was the computer uh, brain in Superman 3. Like, if you needed a gigantic stage in Europe, you would go and you would shoot on this stage. So they ended up making a lot of money off of it by the time all was said and done. Nice. Yeah, I, I didn't know uh, the whole story behind that. But, yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that was forward yeah. thinking of them, too, yeah. to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Well, Cubby um, was kind of known for that. He was like, they said, how much will it cost? They said, a million dollars. He goes, go do it. <laughs> it's like okay, <laughs> so they they built this spectacular set, and the other uh, the other um, interesting trivia about the set was they built the set, and it was gigantic, and it was so big that it became like really a challenge to light it, because how do you put lights in all of these you know in in the, in such a big space, and they said that the um, 
the uh, the the cinematographer was Claude Renoir, the great uh, French cinematographer. But he said he was like stumped, like how how am I going to get all these lights in here to light it? So Ken Adam on on a day off called Stanley Kubrick, who who he said you know Kubrick began as a photographer. So you know and 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 Ken Adam said there was nobody who knew lighting better than Stanley Kubrick. So he called Kubrick and he said, hey, can you come in? and um and and help me figure out how we're going to light this stage and Kubrick said i'm not going to do that he goes he goes he goes people are going to see me and they're going to think i have something to do with it he goes i don't know i don't want to do it he goes stanley will come in on a weekend and no one will know you came in so uh, ken adam brought Kubrick in and i guess Kubrick ducked down and put a coat over himself so the guard wouldn't (laughs) see Kubrick coming in (laughs) and they went in and Kubrick walked around and he figured out a way to put the the lighting on the soundstage, the practical lights on the set were used to light the soundstage, which is not usually how it's done. When you see a, when you see a practical movie and a, a practical light in a movie set, that's usually not providing the lighting. There's usually outside lighting, but he figured a way to put in all these floodlights and other things. Um, and so the lighting of the set was designed in large part by Stanley Kubrick. Wow. Yeah, that is a fascinating yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I I had heard about that some time back, but uh, yeah, I had had totally forgotten that. So yeah, that's that's an interesting tidbit for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk a little bit about the uh, the casting of the uh, one of the uh, I guess it's Stromberg's henchmen. Uh, <laughs> of yeah. course, uh, Mr. Jaws. Uh, originally, yeah. the casting was uh, Will Will Sampson, who famously was in. Uh, uh, one Proof of the Cuckoo's Nest, and later Poltergeist right. 2, and then Dave Prowse, who also uh, was doing uh, duty as Darth Vader around the same time that the film was shot. So those are two of the choices, but they wound up with Richard Keel, and he yes. uh, turns in a pretty menacing performance in the film, I would say. Yeah, he, well, he had, um, he's actually the only element that's held over from the novel. There was a character, I believe the character's name was Horror, who like the the two gangsters who come to threaten the woman at the motel, and and he's described as having like uh, metal, I think braces or something on his teeth, and and the and so when they were, you know, creating the screenplay, they decided to have a guy with metal teeth who could kill people with his teeth, and of course, you know, this was all being done in 1975, so they named the character Jaws. And yeah, and Will Sampson was considered. Jack O'Halloran, who was later in Superman 2, was also considered. Um, yeah, Dave Prowse was considered. But uh, Richard Keel had been in um, in the, in the uh, Gene Wilder film Silver Streak, in which he played a henchman, mm-hmm. and he was on a train. And there was a set on the train in The Spy Who Loved Me. There was going to be a fight, and Cubby apparently really liked how menacing Richard Keel looked um, in the set because, you know, he's a really big guy. So he kind of dominates the train scene. And so they approached him and he said when he found out that he had to wear the teeth, he was a little, eh, maybe not. But then he, <laughs> he decided to. Um, yeah. And he and he became he became one of the great pop culture icons of the Bond series. I mean, next to Oddjob, he's the most famous uh, henchman. And also he was, um, you know, in, in the in the late 70s, if you said Jaws, if you didn't think of the shark, you thought of Richard Keel. So absolutely, yeah, yeah, really nice guy too. Met met him once upon a time, and uh, just a really. I humble, did as well. Yeah, yeah super nice, guy. super nice man. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so the production, it was uh, there was a lot of location shooting in this film. Well, we can talk a, bit, a little bit about that if you want to. And the uh, the pyramids uh, proved to be a little bit of a challenge, I believe. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so we yeah. Talk. So the the main unit filmed. Um, they they began in Egypt, and uh, the pyramids were really difficult to light, because again, you know, we we don't think of this, but you know, first of all, the pyramids are out in the desert, which means that if you're going to get any image on screen at all, you've got to flood the thing with light because the sequences that the pyramids take place at night, and really there was no way to light the pyramids themselves and the foreground actors in any way that was going to get an image on film. So what they ended up doing was while they did film some material around the actual sites, when you see there's a sequence where um, they're doing the, the, the name of the, uh, the name of the show is uh, I'm not, I'm bad with French, but it's son 
Lumiere, meaning sun and moon, basically. Um, and and it's it's a, a light show on the pyramids, and Bond meets some contacts there. And really what they ended up doing was they filmed the audience, and then they shot miniatures of of the pyramids and basically matted them into the scene because there was no way to light the actual pyramids in the same shot as the actors. So that was one of the things that happened. One of the other things that happened there was that um, they need they were in editing they were they were, needed a shot of Roger Moore leaning up against a wall waiting for Jaws to come by because he's supposed to be observing what's happening and he's tracking Jaws and he's tracking his contact and everything. And when they got to editing, they couldn't uh, find a shot that worked. So they took a still photo of Roger on the set, cut it out, and then um, basically matted it into the scene where the, where the live action was happening. And if you look, there's a shot of Bond leaning up against the wall and Roger never moves because he's a still photo. It's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. That is great. Well, and um... then they filmed in, um, so they filmed there, they filmed in Sardinia, which is where um, uh, uh, the bad guy's headquarters are supposed to be. Um, and then they all, they filmed, they never filmed on an actual super tanker. There is no shot of, of a real super tanker in the movie. The shots you see are a miniature that was shot by the great Derek Mettings, uh, the, the great, uh, pioneer in miniature model photography. Um, and they basically built a, I forget how long it was, but it was like 60 feet long or something. And it was powered by like a powerboat motor. And they filmed that in the Bahamas. They filmed Atlantis, which is the the villain's headquarters, which is supposed to be a floating city that comes up out of the underwater and comes to the surface. And apparently there was a floating city in Japan, which is not the idea. But when they went to look at it, it was it said it was just kind of like ugly and concrete, and didn't really do anything. So they Ken Adam created this spectacular original structure. Um, the Lotus, uh, famous, famously, it's the it's the film with James Bond's uh, submarine car, the Lotus Esprit, um, that can turn into an underwater sub. And all of the sub stuff was shot in the Bahamas as well. Uh, so yeah, so they got around. And then the most probably the most famous location in the movie. Um, is Mount Asgard in, in the, at the Arctic Circle uh, for the pre-credit sequence, which was is still probably the best pre-credit sequence of any James Bond movie ever, where Bond is being chased by um, KGB agents and he skis off of a mountain and you think he's going to fall to his death. And then at the last second, a parachute opens and it has the British flag on it, the Union Jack on it. Um, and that was done for real, no special effects, no CGI, because they didn't have CGI. That was done for real um, in the Arctic Circle. It's an amazing opening. It sure is. I totally yeah. agree with you. It's it's hard to hard to top that one, for sure. Yeah, um, I I remember when I saw the film, my audience was, was screaming and applauding when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was great. Yeah, it's. Uh... It, it was only downhill from there until we uh, until he was skiing to the to the strains of uh, California Girls a few films later. So <laughs> yeah, well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Well, anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, the Bond girls, uh, girl, uh, the main Bond girl, I guess, of this film uh, would be Barbara Bach. Uh, there was some talk that Catherine Deneuve. Yes. may have yeah. been offered the role or was interested, but then it didn't didn't work out. Uh, don't yeah, think her well, salary was, demands were met. Uh, you can tell us that, a little bit about that. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, so Cubby always had this thing where he never really wanted to cast anybody like like too big a name in the films, especially in the female roles, other than Bond, because his feeling was, you know, ba- basically big stars want a lot of money. And they usually want a percentage of the profits. And and he felt that people were going to come to see the movie because it was James Bond and, he, and, and either they were coming to see Sean Connery or Roger Moore. 
So they had approached a few actresses. They'd approached uh, Catherine Deneuve and Marta Keller, who was, who was, uh, you know, kind of a getting to be a name there was approached at that time. Um, and there was a couple others, but basically what they said is every time they'd get into negotiations, you know, they wanted big salaries because they were names and they wanted percentages and that was too much for Cubby. So he then decided to go the let's find an unknown and make a star route, which he had done a number of other times in the series. And they came upon um, Barbara Goldbacher from Queens, uh, who refashioned herself as Barbara Bach and had made a number of films. She was a model and she'd made a number of films in um, Italy and I believe France. But she'd never made a film in English, even though she she was from Queens, New York. Um, but she was dating um, uh, the head of United Artists European Division, Danton Reisner at the time. And I guess he put her up for a small part in the film because they were looking for um, the other part in the film. The, the other major female part is uh, 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 Stromberg has a henchwoman named... Um, Oh, what was her name? Naomi, and ultimately played by Carolyn Monroe. But I think Barbara Bach went up either for that part or there was, there was a girl in the beginning of the movie that Bond is with. So she went up for a small part, and somewhere along the line, they started to think that maybe she could do the lead. And she was obviously stunningly beautiful, which was a giant you know requirement back then. You know that that was how they tended to cast the Bond women. <laughs> and 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 the question was, could she act? because she'd mostly done modeling and said she'd acted in, you know, smaller parts in foreign films. And there was some concern about that. She's a little stiff in a few of her earlier scenes, but she gets into the part at some point. Um, and I guess uh, Danton Reisner was really worried he would get fired if uh, she turned out, you know, to, to be a, to be a dud. But she obviously turned out to be um, terrific. So it, it all worked out for everybody. Oh, yeah. I think she's fondly remembered uh, for her. Time yeah, yeah. In the film. She does not talk about it very much. In fact, she's, she does no interviews about it. She's not on any of the DVDs. There was some rumors that she and Roger didn't get along particularly well. Hmm. Um, I don't know how true that is, but it is interesting. She has never spoken about it. So I, I don't know how she feels about it, but, but she's certainly very well thought of by fans. Oh, yeah, sure. And I never thought. Uh, about that, I never stopped to think about her absence from the uh, from the bonus materials on the the uh, the subsequent video releases. So yeah, that's a that, that's a good point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So so this production ran from around roughly August of '76 to December, I believe it was of '76. So by the tail end of '76, they were pretty much done with the principal photography uh, on it, I think, and it was yes, uh, in, yes. on to post. On to the post, as they say, post production. <laughs> um, well, the post, yeah, the post had a lot. The model shooting continued. And it's also, I mean, the Bond films did not have a ton of visual effects, but Spy actually has quite a few visual effects. A lot of obviously model and miniature shots, but there's also a lot of mats and a lot of um, composite shots. There's a wonderful one where um, early in the film, the uh, Atlantis rises up from the sea and you see some um, scientists get on a helicopter and as they're taking off, the helicopter takes off and it pans up to Stromberg looking out a window and it just looks like a shot filmed in some, you know, in some nautical kind of location. In fact, the, the helicopter is shot in one place. The, uh, the the window that Stromberg was looking out was the part of the miniature and Stromberg himself was projected into it. And they did it all without optical printing. It was all done with rear projection and all sorts of things. So, the, so there's some pretty innovative shots, even though you don't realize you're looking at innovative shots. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, yeah that that there's something to be said for thinking on your toes and having to to solve problems as they come along, as opposed to having your just so many tools at your disposal where there's there's just no where the creativity. I guess the creativity is is what uh, makes. Uh, these movies special when they actually yes. have to really think hard how to solve these problems whereas uh this is just not the case anymore and i, th I think it kind of shows sometimes yeah yeah like like it, it's it's a weird time where we can make anything come to life in a movie and therefore you don't believe it anymore you know whereas the, the goal in those days was to do as much of it for real as possible 
because the more reality in a shot, whether the audience is aware of it or not, the more they buy it. And as I said, the most spectacular thing in the film is Bond skiing off a mountain. Today, that would be done with CGI. And, and it would probably be a CGI Bond and a CGI mountain. And I think we'd look at it and we'd go, okay, that's, that's whatever. That was a real guy skiing off a real mountain. Yeah. <laughs> and you know it when you watch it. You know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. Yeah, so uh, what was the final uh, tally on the budget? Do you? Uh, I, I think I had that number in front of me, but this, I can't seem yeah. to find it right well, now. It was budgeted, I believe, at twelve, and I think it finally came in around thirteen or fourteen. Oh, okay. Because um, they had run over a little bit, uh-huh. um, you know. But for the most part, uh, it, it came in roughly on budget. But you know, there was a lot of concern because the concern was. That was a lot of money to spend on a Bond movie. And again, Man with the Golden Gun had not done well. And I think the feeling was that the jury was still out on Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, they, because Live and Let Die had done well, but then Man with the Golden Gun had not. So I think the thought was, you know, is, are we betting too much on on the wrong horse here? But what had happened is, again, Cubby went all out. So in the post-production, you know, they did a lot of these visual effects. They, um, the editor of the film was John Glenn, who at that time was known as a British film editor and a second unit director. He had shot second unit on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and that was the last Bond film he had worked on. Lewis Gil- he had worked with Lewis Gilbert on something previously, so when Lewis Gilbert came on, he asked for Glenn to come on and edit the film, and then somewhere in the pre-production, he was assigned to go, and he actually shot the sequence where Bond skis off the, the mountain, um, and that was all his work. So he he shot second unit, and then he edited the film, and it's a wonderfully edited picture. It's a very good-looking movie. The sets are spectacular, which you know, no no surprise with Ken Adam, but Claude Renoir's cinematography is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those elements really came together. They they could not get John Barry to do the music, and John Barry was the the regular Bond composer, though he kind of had an on and off track in the 70s. He had done um, Diamonds Are Forever, but he had not done Live and Let Die. That was done by George Martin, who was the first person after John Barry took over to get a credit as a composer on a Bond film. Monty Norman has the composer credit on Dr. No. John Barry did all the rest. Then uh, um, George Martin came in. Barry came back from Man with the Golden Gun, but but by 1976, he had moved to America because that was the time when all the British people were leaving because the, the taxes were so high. So he was busy doing one of my favorite scores of his, the the 70s King Kong. Um, But he was not available for spies. So they brought in Marvin Hamlish, who had recently won an Oscar for doing the score for um, The Sting and also had done the score for The Way We Were. He was a very unusual choice because um, his scores were very sort of lyrical and romantic and Bond films needed a you know, a certain action energy. And so when, when everyone heard Marvin Hamlish was doing it, it's like, well, that's odd. Is he going to, is he going to be up to the, to the action stuff? And, and he did a thing that at the time was funny and it's still funny to me now, but I kind of just love it. The opening of the movie, he mixed in the James Bond theme with basically a Bee Gees disco track for, for a cut that was called on the record Bond 77 and it's got this kind of wonderful disco-y guitar, but it also has the Bond theme. And, you know, it's a little over the top, and it's a little very much of the time, but it worked gangbusters then, and, and to this day I can't help but smile whenever I hear it come on the soundtrack. Um, and the rest of his score is fine. It, it's not quite a John Barry score. Uh, it, it is a little, um, I don't know, uh, uh, Bass heavy in a couple places, but it worked fine. But his his most significant contribution to the film was in those days it was traditional for the composer of the score to compose the title song for the film. Nowadays that's not quite true. They like to get in sort of pop acts to do it. Mm-hmm. So he wrote the theme for what became known as Nobody Does It Better, 
he was at the time dating Carol Bayer Sager, who was one of the uh, top lyricists of the day. She wrote the lyrics, which are terrific. And they both decided they wanted Carly Simon to sing it. And Carly Simon was huge at the time. And she really loved doing it. She was a Bond fan. And, um, and it's, it's just, it's one of the best Bond themes ever. I might argue it's the best Bond theme song. I, I, for me, it's my personal favorite. Um, and it's just, and it became a hit record, which the Bond themes did not always become. Um, but it also kicked the movie off with exactly the right, tone because um you know they wanted they wanted to say you guys are going to have a great time and they the first line of the song is nobody does it better like they're literally promoting the film in the song and it's terrific and morris binder stepped up with one of his most innovative title sequences um he he really that's where he began a, a trend that he kind of kept up for the rest of his time on the bonds with mm-hmm. um make naked girls doing gymnastics on gun barrels and things like that yeah like at the time you know i was a kid when i saw it i was like what is that and, you know but um it's also the first time james bond appears in the title sequence that he used roger in the in the actual title sequence um, the, the United Artists put it out with a massive publicity campaign, and they even went with an entire new style of poster because usually there had been several artists who had done the Bond. Bonds were famous for having these wonderful paintings as part of their um, their promotional campaigns for their posters, and they had artists like um, I think Robert McCall did a couple and Frank McCarthy did a couple and there was a kind of a standard look of the Bond posters and they decided this time to go with Bob Peake who was a famous illustrator and he had done the that really great poster for um, Camelot and a few other things but he'd never done a Bond and they came up with this really terrific poster that is not just a great poster it's also kind of a really cool piece of 70s art on top of it um, so they changed the look of that and then they came up with um, one of the best taglines uh, for a Bond film. It's the biggest, it's the best, it's Bond and beyond. And all of that worked to to really sell the movie in a way they had not sold in quite a while. Totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the poster yeah. is, uh, I have fond memories of seeing it and hanging in the local theater window and when I was uh, a young lad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. Well, uh, well, if you're ever out here again and you come over, it's hanging in my living room, so you can see it here too. <laughs> there we go. Good. I know. I should. I should uh, get one of those myself. That's. You know. That's yeah. a shame. I have tons of movie posters hanging, but no James Bond posters in my uh, in my home. And that's uh, that's something I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to do something about that. That's a shame. So uh, yeah. Get on that, young man. Get on. Uh, exactly. <laughs> So uh, yeah, you did mention the top that it was a top ten hit. Actually, I think it got to number three on the charts, if I'm not mistaken. And the last charting uh, Bond theme that was a single from a Bond film, I think, was "You Only Live Twice" by Nancy Sinatra. I think that, I think the rest of them had not made the top forty. Uh, they may have hit the Hot 100, but I don't think the the forty. So you're absolutely well, um, correct about that. Live and Let Die did really. Oh, I forgot about Live and Let but, Die. Yes, you're right. Other yeah. than Live and Let Die, yes, that is correct. Yeah, yeah but you're hit. right. Yep, that, that was a glaring oversight on my part. So, yeah, I had totally <laughs> forgotten about that one. But And how could I? Huge, huge hit. So, anyway, yeah, but like you said, they, uh, they were kind of I, – I typically like the Bond themes, uh, especially – I thought Diamonds Are Forever is a great song that deserved to yeah. to get some chart action but just did not. But, anyway, um, so I, in closing, I will have – I always like to ask about uh, your initial encounter with the film and what did you think initially and where you saw it the first time and what your feelings were. I always like to close out by hearing that story because those are always interesting stories about people's first uh, first viewings of these films. Sure. Yeah, no, it actually was the first Bond film I ever saw in a theater. Um, uh, the, the first Bond film I ever saw was You Only Live Twice. And for those of us old enough to remember, um, ABC would run the Bond films on their Sunday night movie, and they were always kind of an exciting, uh, you know, kind of special treat. And so the first film I saw was You Only Live Twice. I saw Spy Who Loved Me in July of 77 when it came out, and my I had a friend at the time, a school friend, 
who was a big James Bond fan. He actually, I didn't really know that much about Bond at the time, but this guy was a Bond fanatic. And um, my family had actually moved away from, I grew up on Long Island in New York, but we had moved away. But I had gone back to visit my friend for a week in the summer, and his dad drove us over to a theater in Syosset, New York, Long Island. And, and, and I had kind of a funny, weird encounter with Spy Who Loved Me because I saw it three times in the theater. I saw it with my friend. And then I saw it another time a little later in that same summer. And then we had a near where I was living at the time. We had a second run house that would show movies for a dollar. So towards the end of that year, I took my brother, my little brothers and sisters to see it all three times. We got to the theater late. And so I never saw the ski sequence, the, the skiing off the mountain in order. Like the time I went with my friend, we, we came in at the end of the titles. Yeah. And so we stayed for the next showing to see the opening. And then the <laughs> second time I got there late and I don't think I stayed for the opening. And when I took my siblings, uh, we also got there late and, and we had to stay. So I never actually saw it at the beginning of the movie until it actually showed on, um, on ABC a few years later. And I finally saw the movie from beginning to end, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I loved it. I, I, it, it was what I, and I, what I loved about it then I, I couldn't articulate in the same way I can now, but it's the same things that I love now. First of all, it's just a really super entertaining movie. Um, you know, it's got action, it's got, um, you know, jokes, it's got spectacle. The, the whole sequence where um, James Bond leads the attack on the bad guys in the end in the super tanker set, it goes on for about 15 minutes and it's just action packed and spectacular. Um, the set is incredible looking. Uh, you know, the ski jump in the beginning is great. The underwater car is great. I mean, if you're a kid or a kid of any age, it's kind of the, there's two kinds of Bond films. There's fantasy Bond and what I call the more straightforward thriller Bond. This one is definitely a fantasy Bond. I think it's one of the best. I could argue it may be the best. I'm, I'm sure people, you know, Goldfinger is another fantasy Bond, and that's certainly right up there. But um, Spy is just, it's just wonderfully entertaining. Uh, it's gigantic, which I think works so well on a big screen. Um, it's Roger Moore's best Bond film. He himself felt that. And I think that's the consensus of most of the fans. And I also think, you know, Roger gets, um, Roger gets slammed sometimes for not being the heavyweight character that uh, some of the other actors are. But I often, my feeling is when people say, you know, he didn't make a credible James Bond. I said, you go watch that film. He's got two scenes in that movie that are just as credible as anything Sean Connery or Daniel Craig did. Um, there's one scene, the famous thing in the Bond films is in the George Lazenby one. He gets married and his wife gets killed. And that, that death is referenced through a number of other Bond films. Interestingly, no more than in the Roger Moore films reference them quite a bit. And, um, and he is basically confronted with his wife's death in one scene. And Roger reacts with like both sort of cool and pain at the same time. It's, a, it's, I think it's, it's my favorite scene of his in all of his films. He also has another sequence later in the film where he confronts the, you know, cause he, he's teamed up in the film with a Russian agent. And then you find out later on that in the beginning of the film, he kills some of the KGB agents who are chasing him. And one of the people he kills is the, the lover of the woman that he spends the movie with Barbara Buck's character. So she threatens him. She threatens to kill him at the end of the mission. And his response there is also quite strong and quite, quite credible. Also, he did the suave parts of Bond better than anybody. Um, and I think they all come together wonderfully in that film. And, and, uh, you know, so I, I think it's a high watermark in the series. Um, and, and as I said, as a kid, I just, I just was blown away by the action and the spectacle and the comedy and the adventure. And I still remain blown away to it to this day.